We have been so blessed as a nation. We really have. We have so much more than they, they have in third world countries. Are we the better for it? Has it led us to repentance? You, you look at the UK and affluent countries around the world. Are they seeking God? Does the goodness of God lead them to repentance compared to the Hmong people that I've worked with over in Thailand who have nothing and yet they love God and they're hungry for God? What's wrong with this picture here? Let's talk about it. The effect of God's goodness. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Well, let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans, which is familiar territory to us, and actually the second chapter, which we covered a few months back, but I really feel like we need to back up, because there's a verse here, and it's a misunderstood one, I think. It's a misunderstood passage, and so this is a textual message. We're really just looking at one text, and it's a truth that is too powerful to fumble. And so we want to get it right because it really has some ramifications associated with it. In Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse number 3, it says, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. What is that talking about? The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Well, I thought I knew what it was talking about. You may have thought you knew what it was talking about, but we really want to know the effects of God's goodness. And so we're going to talk about it. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we come before thee at this time. We pray that thou wouldst just please bless this time of study of thy word with an admonition attached. And Father, we just pray that you would help us to understand this verse, this passage, this truth, that we might apply it right. And Father, I just pray now all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the old-time preacher once said, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. And then I'm going to tell you. And then I'm going to tell you what I told you. Okay? You follow me? I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. But then I'm going to tell you. And when we're done, I'm going to tell you what I told you. As we look at verse number 4 and we see these words, the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, we often think that if God is good to somebody, if God is a, a good blessing God to the sinner, that sinner will repent. I preached through this recently. And afterwards I got to thinking, is that really what that verse is saying? Is that the primary application? Is that the foundational truth? Is that the fundamental message and, and really the prime thought behind that verse? What got me thinking is my association with somebody in the past and, in, and more recently that, that I've been trying to help along, if you will. And uh, this person, I could, I could say, is a bit estranged from God and uh, is on the outs with God. And, and so I've tried to emphasize to them God's blessings, and thinking the goodness of God will lead them to repentance, it has not. It's kind of led to a yawn. It's like a whatever. As you point this out to people, God is so good, you would think, well, they're going to repent. But 
quite often I see just the opposite. And so I take a look at this and I say, am I reading this right? Uh, have I preached this right? And I've preached it for years. I know a number of preachers who've preached it the same way, that when God is good to lost people or sinful people or even Christian people who are on the outs, they'll repent. And we, we take this verse as a principle that teaches that. But if that's the truth, why has God been so good to America and America has not repented? God has poured out his blessings upon this country and all we've done is get further and further and further away from God. Now, I've been to Africa a few times, and I've seen a people over there that, uh, well, we'd call it a third world nation. They don't have nearly the blessings that we have here, and yet they're hungry for the things of God. They're seeking the Word of God. I mean, they're asking you for tracks if they see them sticking out of your pocket. They are so open, and yet, it's just the opposite of what verse number 4 is saying here. They have conducted an experiment where they've asked the average household in the average country to take all the stuff out of their house and to lay it out on the front lawn and then take a picture of them. And, of course, you can go to places like Africa where they'll pull a few things out of their huts and, and really hardly amounts to anything on the front lawn, which really isn't even a lawn. It's a bunch of dirt and dust. And yet you've got the average American household and they bring stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff out of their house and they pile it up. And the message is obvious. We have been so blessed as a nation. We really have. We have so much more than they, they have in third world countries. Are we the better for it? Has it led us to repentance? You, you look at the UK and affluent countries around the world. Are they seeking God? Does the goodness of God lead them to repentance compared to the Hmong people that I've worked with over in Thailand who have nothing and yet they love God and they're hungry for God? What's wrong with this picture here? Let's talk about it. The effect of God's goodness. First of all, we see what I call this ambiguous discrepancy. If something is ambiguous, it means having two meanings or maybe being obscure or vague or or not clear, or, or uncertain. As I look at this verse, I, I see some uncertainty in really our understanding of it. And it hinges on the word goodness. You find that word twice there in verse number 4. It mentions, despising thou the riches of his goodness, and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Now, when we hear about the goodness of God, what do we think of immediately? Well, we think of his goodness to us, don't we? God being good to us, let's just call it this way, a.k.a. also known as his blessings. God's blessings to us and us being benefactors of those blessings. We're recipients of those blessings. They're favors from God. God's kindness is bestowed upon us, and we receive all this stuff from God. And that, my friend, apparently leads us to repentance. Is that the truth? No, it's normally the opposite. What I find quite often is people who take and take and take become ungrateful. And in fact, they become spoiled, they become forgetful, and uh, they even get demanding. Have you noticed that? I don't just uh, think I should get that, I demand I get that. And, and somebody who takes and takes and receives and sees, they get very self-centered. There is a principle taught in the Bible, and it's a powerful one. I preached a whole sermon on it one time, just this one verse. Luke 12, 34, where Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What Christ is telling us here is that the thing you give toward, the thing you invest in, 
your heart follows. You parents, those of you who have invested your, in your kids from the time they were born, and you give, and you give, and you give, and they take, and they take, and they take, and they take. Well, where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Those of you who fought in the military, uh, you're going to be somewhat patriotic, I would assume, because where your treasure is, there will your heart be. That place you work at, you know, I might not care about it that much, but you sure do. Or your business, whatever it might be. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That is a principle. You can take two spouses, and one is selfish and self-centered, and let's just say it's the guy, and the gal, she's very giving. And so she gives, and she gives, and she gives. And he takes, and he takes, and he takes. Guess who's going to love more in that marriage? Oh, you say the one who's getting and getting. No, no, it's just the opposite of what we think. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. The one who's been investing and pouring out forbearance and patience and love. I mean, they're going to have something invested now, and their heart's going to follow. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So let's go back to this business of the goodness of God, His giving to us, apparently, leading us to repentance. As I looked at that, I thought, we better dig into the Word, okay? Let's take a look at the Greek. You know what the word goodness there means? The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Amongst other things, in the Greek language, here's what it's talking about. Don't miss this. Moral excellence. Moral excellence in character and demeanor. Now, whose moral excellence? Ours? <laughs> Are you kidding? There's none righteous, no, not one. We are sinners. We're talking about the moral excellence in the character of God. We're talking about the goodness of God, meaning His holiness, His righteousness, His greatness. That's what we're talking about here. Not His giving, but the fact He has these attributes that, I guess, describe Him as good. Remember when the rich young ruler came sliding into Christ and, and said, Good master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? In Mark 10:18, Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Of course, the cults jump all over this and say, Well, look at Jesus is saying, He's not good. Are you kidding? That's not what He's saying at all. He says, In another place, who convinceth me of sin? He was good. He was sinless. And He's not inferring here He's not good. He's inferring here He is God. If there is none good but God, and you're calling me good, connect the dots, okay? It equals up to the, the fact that Christ is good. But notice, Jesus says there is none good but God. Was he talking about God being good for giving stuff away? No. He was talking about his moral character here. His attributes. The fact he's excellent. There is none good but God. In other words, righteous. God is righteous. And there is none righteous but God. So think about it here. If this verse is talking about the goodness of God giving us blessings, leading us to repentance, has America's prosperity turned us to God? No. <laughs> has America's prosperity led to repentance? No. Just the opposite. Here's God. He gives us wealth. He gives us freedom. He gives us uh, nice houses, cupboards full, money in the bank, uh, good health. Does that lead us to repentance? Does that make us repent? No, that doesn't lead us to repentance at all. In fact, uh, God gives us wealth and it turns us from repentance. 
God gives us blessings and it turns us from repentance. Freedom, nice clothes, full cupboards, and it turns us from repentance. If you just look at history, folks, you've heard of the Industrial Revolution in this land and in this country and and how when that took place, I mean, we began to prosper incredibly. It led to the gay 90s, different kind of gay 90s, and you might be thinking of if you're younger, but back in the 1890s, they were called the gay 90s. Well, Shortly after all that reveling and all that gaiety, we find ourselves embroiled as a nation in World War I. It's a sobering time. It sobers us up. But we have a short memory. Because shortly after we get humbled, we're in the roaring 20s. And there we are partying hardy again until, whoops, the depression sets in. Do you see God's hand in any of this, by the way? A World War II following that and humbling us even further? sobering us up. I'm telling you, prosperity takes us away from God. Humbling and sobriety gets us on our knees and toward God. I came back from Greece in March, and, and uh, Greece was a country years ago, that, uh, that intellectual thing. You know, into the intelligentsia and the, the halls of higher learning. And knowledge is king. And so they're full of intellectual pride, or they were at least over there. And of course, money abounded and all that until the economy collapsed. If you follow the news, you know that happens sometime. And I'm telling you, the people over there are so humbled. It's, it's, it's really staggering here. You know, if you even look at the FM area, and you even knock doors as some of us do, and you're in affluent neighborhoods, and then you're in humble neighborhoods, you know, you might be more apt to be able to talk to the, uh, the blue-collar guy who's outside uh, washing his own car about the things of God than the affluent guy who uh, has a BMW in the driveway that he takes to the car wash who really doesn't need God. It's not the goodness of God in that way that leads to the repentance. They've even proven that those who are prosperous give less than those who basically are the common man. You know, it's not wealth, it's not blessings, it's not prosperity that really brings about repentance. It's adversity. It's trials. It's, it's turmoil. I'll never forget in the early 90s, and we were in the old building back then, and our nation kind of just plummeted into this war out of nowhere, the Gulf War. And, uh, well, I'll tell you what, the whole town was sober. And we saw church attendance go up in our church even at that time. It's like, what's going on? People were shook up. We saw it again in 9-11. That kind of thing leads people to repentance. I don't think verse 4 is saying God's blessings upon us lead to repentance. In fact, in Psalm 33, 5, it says, He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. You don't have to look around. It's full of the goodness of the Lord. Is that driving people to repentance? No. Christ said this in Matthew 5, 45, For he, God maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good. They benefit the same. And sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Do the unjust appreciate that? Does the goodness of God lead them to repentance? I trow not. Yet the result is God's blessings are there, but we get continually more corrupt and more depraved, and we continually take things for granted more. That's what Israel did. The nation of Israel was so blessed of God, and yet they took those blessings for granted. You know, it's been termed a welfare mentality. You know, forgive me for that expression, but you, you take and take and receive and receive and receive, and pretty soon it's not a matter of I'd like that, it's a matter of I demand that. 
We have to watch that with our Bible college here, by the way. We've made the, 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 the going to school here so affordable, and we've laid out these brand new dormitories, and we've charged $100 a month, and we've sacrificed. And I'm telling you, what can happen is the students can get a welfare mentality. We have to continually throughout the year remind them to take care of this stuff. Somebody sacrificed for it. Somebody paid a price to make this possible for you. But boy, you waltz right in, you get all these blessings and all these freebies. It doesn't lead to repentance. Never does. Never has. Blessings don't lead to repentance. Not for the most part. So we see this ambiguous discrepancy. The word goodness here in verse number 4 is not talking about God being good to us, but God being good, period. God being moral, God being righteous, God being upstanding, and having integrity, and being pure, and being holy, and being blameless, and being sinless. And it is that greatness of God, when we see it, that leads us to repentance. The word goodness found there twice in verse number 4, actually the words are almost identical. They would be, I guess, next to each other in the dictionary, but they mean the very same thing. God being good in the fact He is righteous and upstanding and pure and holy. So we see this ambiguous discrepancy, but secondly, we see this actual dilemma. How does this thing work? What's the dilemma here? You're in Romans 2. Look across the page to Romans 3, if you would. And here we find this, uh, this resume for mankind beginning in verse number 10. It's not a flattering one. As it is written... There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. That's like a grave. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps or snakes is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way. The way of peace have they not known. Verse 18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. The problem with, with society is verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They do not repent because they do not see the greatness of God. And because they don't see the greatness of God, they don't realize who they're dealing with. Bottom line is no Repentance. You've got God who's holy and, and righteous and powerful, all powerful. He is just, He is faithful, He is love, He is mercy, He is kind. He's all those things. But we don't see that. When we do, when my badness comes alongside of God's goodness, suddenly we realize, oh my, there's a contrast here. God is holy. I need to repent. He's not cool with my life. He's not okay with this stuff that I'm doing. The greatness of God leadeth us to repentance. I realize I need to repent. When my imperfection comes alongside of His perfection, when His glory comes alongside of my depravity, when His eternality comes alongside my temporariness, His omnipotence comes alongside of my weakness, His omnipresence comes alongside my being in one place at one time then I realize, oh my, I'm dealing with a great God here. I'm dealing with an awesome God here. In fact, look in Isaiah chapter 6, if you would. 
This is a classic example of what I'm talking about here. Isaiah, the prophet, is perhaps the holiest man alive at the time in which he lived, at the time in which he prophesied. He was God's man, wrote 66 chapters of the Bible, powerful prophet. And yet, he gets a glimpse of the glory of God and realizes what he is. And by the way, he's not the only one. John the Revelator, the holiest man at his time, I mean, fell on his face as one dead when he got a glimpse of Christ in his glorified body. When Daniel, the holiest man alive at his time, got a glimpse of the glory of God, there was no breath in him anymore. It's like, he, like the wind was knocked out of him. Well, here's Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And in verse number 1, it says, or he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Isaiah is about to see God in a light that he had never seen him before. And of course, the question here would be, well, why didn't he see it before? I don't know if there's a little hint in verse number one about Uzziah dying. But Uzziah was a great king. I think he, he ascended to the throne when he was only 16. And he ruled longer than any other king in Judah, I think 52 years. And he was a, a great man. He really was. And maybe so great that Isaiah's eyes were on him. And it took the death of Uzziah for Isaiah to really, whoa, I, now I can see God. Uzziah was in the way, but whoa, I see God in a way I've never seen him before. So he sees God in verse number one, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it, that is his throne, stood the seraphims. These are angelic beings. Each had six wings, and with twain or two he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. And then said I, says Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here he is, a good man, a holy man. But oh, when he saw the goodness of God, he repented. He realized what he really was here. When we see God's goodness and his righteousness next to our insufficiency and our depravity and our shame, it leads us to repentance. It's not because our plate is full and our stomach is full and God's been blessing us that we, okay, I think I'll repent here. I, I don't think so. But when my littleness gets alongside of God's greatness, we realize what He is. And that goodness leadeth us to repentance. You know, when His greatness comes alongside of my patheticness, I realize what a great God I have. You know what churches need? Churches need a revival of the greatness of God, don't we? We really need to see God high and holy and lifted up because we lack a fear of God. You see these people, or especially these young people with their t-shirts that say no fear. That's their problem. That's their problem. They need a good, strong, healthy fear of God. That would lead them to repentance. I've said many times before of the Ten Commandments, the second one is the one we don't think we're that guilty of, but it's really the darling sin of humanity. Thou shalt not create a God of thy own, thine own image or thine own imagination. We have done that as a country. The, the reason this country is behaving the way it is 
is because, well, God's a good old boy. He, he's cool with what we're doing. Uh, he's all right with all these, these uh, things we're changing now. He's, he's fine with that. To me, God is like this or God is like that, and a good God wouldn't send anyone to hell and so on. Hey, wait a minute. You've invented a God of your own imagination. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the one we sing about when we say, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, how great thou art. Holy, holy, holy. And oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And all hail the power of Jesus' name and crown Him with many crowns. That's the kind of God we need to get back to. A, a holy Savior. Oh, worship the King. How glorious Thou art. Notice what it says here again in verse number 3. These angels cried one to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. And then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Leave it to man to cheapen God, to lessen his greatness and his glory. The effects of God's goodness... His majesty is what leads us to repentance. And we need to point out God's greatness. I think it would help our society to clean up its act, if I could put it that way, or for even us to clean up our lives. What leads us to repentance? It's a glimpse of God's holiness. A glimpse of God's magnitude, His, His preeminence, His, His majesty, His royalty, His, His power. That's what leads us to repentance. We need to forget about ourselves and magnify the Lord and worship Him. We serve an awesome God. And we speak too little about that. It's time to realize, as we put His deity along our humanity, how much greater He is than us. His greatness dwarfs our littleness. His omnipotence dwarfs our insignificance. God help us to see Him for the way He is. In verse 1, Isaiah says, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. He finally got a glimpse of the glory of God and it brought him to his knees in repentance for how he had taken some things for granted. And maybe it was Uzziah that blinded him from that. Let's take a look at Uzziah. And actually the principle is, is lived out in the life of Uzziah. If you turn back to Second Chronicles chapter 26, Uzziah, as I said a moment ago, was a powerful king. He really was. He was a great king. And he had the touch of gold. He was doing everything right. God was blessing him. We find out in verse 1, he was only 16 when he came to the throne. He built all these cities. He did that which was right in verse 4. He sought out the prophet, according to verse 5. He warred against the Philistines and won, according to the next several verses. In verse 9 or 8, you find that the Ammonites are giving him gifts. The Egyptians are as well. And uh, he's building towers in Jerusalem. And uh, he's fighting uh, with 600 and some thousand men. And he's preparing for them in verse 14 all these shields and spears and helmets and all these inventions. And verse 15 says that he made Jerusalem engines invented by cunning men to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks to shoot arrows and great stones withal. 
and his name spread far abroad. For he was marvelously helped. By who? By God. But notice the rest of the verse. Till he was strong. That word till tells us something. It's a hint there. Verse 16 again says, But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. Old Josiah was on a roll. He was on a roll. He could do no wrong. Everything he touched turned to gold. He was Midas. Till he was strong. The blessings of God did not lead him to repentance. Just the opposite here. It gave him a big head. God had to humble him. There are another number of other examples. We could talk about Hezekiah, another good king, but, but he got proud. You know, when it comes to trials versus blessings, it's the trials that drive us to God, that drive us to our knees, that drive us to repentance. It's not the blessings. It's the adversity. With the blessings, uh, it's easy to get fat and sassy, isn't it? And, and kind of forget God. You know, when Moses went up onto the mount to get the Ten Commandments, there was lightning, there was fire, there was smoke, there was earthquakes. And the Bible says that the Israelites down at the base, they trembled exceedingly. They said, you, 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 you go up and talk to him, Moses. We'll we, 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 we just stay down here. They had a fear of God, and it was healthy. Later on, we find them getting three square meals a day and kind of just lollygagging and hanging around. And they get lazy and fat and sassy and lippy and spouting off. And God's goodness did not lead them to repentance. Did God's goodness lead Solomon to repentance? <laughs> I mean, you talk about a guy who just had it all. And I mean, the, he could do no wrong. You talk about the touch of gold. He had all that wealth and all that power. All these servants and all these blessings. God just blessed him abundantly. Did that lead him to repentance? Just the opposite. I mean, he started doing outrageous things. He's... he's uh, turning his back on God, marrying heathen women, sacrificing his children to devils like the, the heathen were, uh, guilty of idolatry, splitting the nation. I mean, you name it. He went south when the blessings of God came upon him. We get bolder, unfortunately, and we get sassier when things are going well. Familiarity can breed contempt, by the way. You get too familiar with God. It's not a healthy thing. There is a good healthy fear of God that we need to have, lest we get a swagger, and lest we get spunky, and lest we get to thinking we're something. It's not the goodness of God in that sense that leads us to repentance. It hasn't worked that way for America. I, I fear for our country today. We have blown off God. We have redefined marriage. Can you imagine that? Something since the beginning of time, a man and a woman, and we've said, no, 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 we got a better idea. No fear of God. The reason millions of, of unborn babies have been aborted is because we have no fear of God. We think God's cool with all this stuff we're doing, and God's a good old boy, and, and there'll be no problem here. Hey, no fear, no repentance. That's the problem. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, I don't get up here every sermon and preach on the terror of the Lord. You know that. But we need a balance. Knowing the terror of the Lord. Society needs to know the terror of the Lord. Society needs a wake-up call. You know what it's going to be, by the way? During the seven-year tribulation period. 
That's when they're going to finally get a glimpse of God and they're going to call for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face of the, the Lamb that sitteth on the throne. That's when we'll get that healthy fear of God. It's, it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. It all starts with that. You know, for 20 and a half years, I took my cue from society as a lost young person. I took my cue from the television set or the, the big screen, if you will, or the songs I listened to with the message in them. I took my cue from my peers, from the teachers in the school there, from society. And uh, you know what? It was all kind of a big joke. No problem, no God, no fear. Psalm 36.1 says, The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. The day came for me, thankfully, when finally some scales fell off. And it was like an eye-opener. It was like, you, you, you mean God is against raunchy stuff? Do you mean God is against drunkenness and sex outside of marriage and raunchy music and ungodly? You mean God is against this stuff? I thank God that His greatness, I guess, finally was, was manifested to me and it led me to repentance. In 2 Chronicles 19.7, it says, Wherefore now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God. And it's time we realize that. It was not God's blessings that brought me to the office of a Baptist preacher that night seeking Christ. It, it wasn't at all. It was the fact that I was a sinner, and I realized I needed cleansing. I needed help. And I saw God for who He was. Psalm 55:19 says, God shall hear and afflict them, even he that abideth of old, Selah. Because they have no changes, therefore they fear not God. Because they have routine, because the sun rose today like it did yesterday and it will tomorrow, because everything is beautiful and going well and no problems, and we're just on this uh, easy course here, because they have no changes, therefore they fear not God. Thank God He sends that adversity, that, that rustling, that shaking up into the lives of those, so many of us who have come to Christ that way. It's not the blessings of God, my friend, that bring repentance. It's us seeing God for who He is. We see, first of all, this ambiguous discrepancy, this actual dilemma, and finally, this approaching directness. What should our approach be? considering that people are clueless when it comes to who God is. Well, the Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. We need this direct approach, uh, this uh, directness, this approach when we do that. We need to help people see the greatness of God. And the only way we're going to do that is to have a revival of the greatness of God in our own hearts and lives. We need to help sinners realize God's not okay with this. We don't coddle them. We don't, we don't say there, there, and baby them and pamper them and, and try and be the good guy all the time because the fact is, they're not looking for God. They are sinners, and they're looking for God the way a, a, a robber is looking for a cop. In fact, in John 3.20, Jesus says, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. They're not kidding anybody. You talk about being little stinkers. They don't want to be reproved for the life they're living, so they stay away from the light, lest their deeds should be reproved. They're stubborn. So do, do sinners need a pat on the back, or do they need a kick in the pants? Good question here. I'm talking about unrepentant sinners. Well, read Matthew 23 sometime, 
And you'll find out what Christ gives to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, unrepentant sinners, and he blasts them. Now, I'm not saying that you go find the first lost person you can and grab them by the lapel and give them both barrels. There's always Christian people that love that kind of thing. All they need is an endorsement and a go-ahead. I mean, you earn a hearing first to tactfully approach people with the truth before you blast away. But man is a sinner, bottom line. And he needs to come to God on God's terms. We don't lower those terms. We don't lower the bar. Modern day Christianity has done that. Watered it down so anybody can get over it with a little profession of faith and go through life unrepentant and unconverted. John the Baptist didn't lower the bar when it came to King Herod. He didn't say, well, you know, I, I don't want to get on what you're doing. I, that's between you and God. Blah, blah. No. He said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother Philip's wife. That is wrong. Of course, Herodias wanted his head for it. But, but Herod, he, he feared John and he respected him. Again, don't make a ministry out of this. There are some Christian people, and that's just like saying sick them, you know. And they absolutely love being heavy-handed and uh, blasting people with rules and telling people what to do. And No, 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 don't do that, especially if you're that way. Please don't do that. Don't miss the point. Love them where they're at, but don't condone their sin. And even in preaching, I need to balance that. I try to balance that out. But, but the truth is, I'm okay, you're okay, it doesn't work. Well, God is good. Will you repent now? It doesn't work that way. In fact, when that rich young ruler came to Christ, Christ exposed his issue, which was self-righteousness, didn't he? He really got to the core of the problem, this guy. You know what new evangelicalism today has done? So many of these churches, they've um, resorted to cheap tactics, gimmicks, entertainment, different devices and clever marketing and all this superficial stuff to try and make God cool. That's not the goal. Not the goal at all. In Revelation or in Psalm 112.1, the Bible says, Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. In other words, I fear God. What does he want? What does he expect? What is he asking? Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, that greatly delighteth in his commandments. Psalm 25.8 says, Notice, good and upright is the Lord, therefore will he teach sinners in the way. God is good, but in the sense of he is, he is righteous, he is holy, he is upright, and therefore will he teach sinners in the way. We need to get back to old-fashioned repentance caused by an elevating of God, an exalting of God, a lifting up of God. We don't need to reinvent God. <laughs> That's what religion is doing today. Bringing God down to our level, making Him hip, and making Him cool, and making Him relevant, and palatable, and appropriate, and fashionable, and politically correct, and contemporary. You know that God doesn't give a wit about being contemporary? God doesn't give a hoot about being in vogue, and chic, and, and, and trendy, and conventional. God doesn't care about any of that. We don't change God to accommodate society. That's what churches have done all over this land. Society changes to accommodate God. Oh, may God help us to get that down. He is not your buddy, buddy God. 
Oh, my buddy, buddy God, he's a man upstairs. No, he's not some, some overweight, gray-haired, irrelevant God suffering dementia someplace up in the clouds. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Creator and the Sustainer and the Lord of glory and high and holy and lifted up. He is alive and He is, he is just. He is the rock of ages. He is the blessed hope. He is the coming King. Young people, let me just say this. You get out there in a society and you can come in here and you can look good. But you get around those, those young people like yourself and they're behaving raunchy and you're smirking at it. And you're listening to their junk. And you're, you're, you're drinking from their drivel, basically. God is holier than that. Don't ever forget that. God is omnipresent and He is holier than that. Get right with God, whatever the age might be. We all need to get right with God. We really do. Because we forget this. Society wears off on us. And uh, there is... One who is righteous, there is one who is flawless, and he is the God of heaven. The Bible says, for our God is a consuming fire. God help us to remember that. He is flawless, don't take him casually. He sitteth in the heavens. He is good. And the bottom line is, the effect of God's goodness is for Christian people to be repenting and living holy lives. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Puppet Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.